Hello, Herstorians. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and welcome to another episode of Women of Herstory, a podcast dedicated to celebrating women who have made or are making their mark on our society. Sitting next to me, as always, is paranormal investigator specializing in shoes, Spooky Beans. What are your Halloween plans? Uh, it's to dress up as spooky as possible, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm probably going to put a sheet over my head, poke a little eyes out, you know? Oh, then... you're going to go around poking people's eyes out no, or poke sorry, eyes out poke the sheet? my eyes out oh. through the sheet. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to be a ghost. Sure. A spooky one. Got it. What about you? Love it. What is your Halloween costume going to be this year? <laughs> She-go. Impossible? Yeah. Okay. You want to be the villain? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Villains have fun. Yeah. <laughs> so well, do heroes, but... Uh, <laughs> well, today we are going to be talking about the trailblazing actress, producer, and director, Ida Lupino. Do you know anything about her? No. You no, will. I'm You'll, excited. Some okay. things will um, trigger. Okay. Well, so. I like to be educated. So sign me up. Sign sign old Spooky up. Let's do it. Quote, I'm mad, they say. I am temperamental and dizzy and disagreeable. Well, let them talk. I can take it. Only one person can hurt me, and her name is Ida Lupino. Boom. I feel that energy. That sets the bar. That sets the pace for um, the kind of person she's going to be. I'm excited. Wow. Ida Lupino was born in London to a British showbiz family on February 4th, 1918. She was the daughter of British review star and film comedian Stanley Lupino and actress Connie Emerald, who was actually born Constance Gladys O'Shea. So she definitely said, no, no, no. no. (laughs) Connie Emerald. (laughs) Her father was a musical sensation with ancestors from Bologna, Italy. Her sister was Rita Lupino. Cousins were Richard Lupino and Laurie Lupino Lane, and second cousin to Wallace Lupino, all of which were involved in show business at high levels as well. Do you think people who are named Wallace get called Wally? Absolutely. Wally Lupino? Yeah. That seems like a character you can't take seriously. <laughs> He's the punchy friend. Oh, Wally. <laughs> Some casual friends of the family were Charles Dickens and J.M. Barry. Oh. Well, I mean, I'm not a fan of J.M. Barry, no, but yeah, that's but fine. But that's yeah, like they're like big Super people. casual, you know? Even Edward VII, the son of Queen Victoria, dubbed them the royal family of grease paint. So they're like the royal family of show business. Interesting. Yeah, isn't that cool? They're, they're giving me, um, oh my gosh, what's her name? Drew Barrymore, like Barrymore family vibes, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with just the legacy left behind. Yeah. The family moved from a home in Dulwich to a Tudor mansion in Stratham, a posh area of London. When Ida was eight, her parents left for a tour of the U.S. and their Broadway engagements. Ida and her sister Rita were then put into the Clarence house a boarding school for girls in West Brighton. Here, she was always writing plays and assigning herself the starring roles. So she <laughs> she had a very creative mind at an early age then. It was oh, already yeah. um, she was, formulating mm-hmm. stories. She she had such a fantasy, uh, like a, 
A fantastical mind. Yes. Yes. A great imagination. Mm -hmm. When Ida was 10, she asked her father to make her a theater for her and her sister. And oh boy, did he come through with the pinnacle of backyard theaters. It was elaborate, even including electrical equipment, a pit, and seating for a hundred. <laughs> That's... I'm so envious. That honestly sounds bigger than some off-off-Broadway venues. It is. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Most don't have a pit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And a pit... And a, seating a pit, for a hundred. Yeah, a pit for anyone wondering would be like an orchestra pit that can raise and lower. And then seating for a hundred. So many of these... Be like, like 55 small, seats. And, yeah. You go into a black house... Or black house, a black, black box, box. And it's like... 35 people can sit uncomfortably. <laughs> <laughs> That's the smallest of the three in the theater. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Ida made her on-screen debut as an extra in The Love Race in 1931, a film her father was starring in that was directed by her cousin, Lupino Lane. A dedicated student, Ida asked to be enrolled in London's Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. During her second term there, she was cast in Heartbreak House by George Bernard Shaw, who is one of my favorite playwrights. Oh my gosh. So she knew the who's who of people in different industries. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Well, she was also showing like such um, advancement Thomas. in her abilities at such a young age. Like mm-hmm. Heartbreak House is a really advanced show. It's a mature show play i guess i should say it's a very mature play and she's like 13 at this point and is able to fill out roles like that because of her level of maturity one day in 1932 ida's mother brought her to an audition she was attending and ida ended up getting the part that her mother wanted and had been brought in for It was apparently like a Lolita type role in the film, Her First Affair. So her mom was a very young looking, you know, late 20s, early 30s woman. And so usually, you know, Magic of Hollywood, a lot of times they'll cast older people and younger, you know, all these things just to get away from like legalities and stuff. But apparently... Ida came That's out. That's a little awkward. <laughs> that that might have been a little bit awkward around the dinner table that first night. How do you go from there? Quote, my agent told me that he was going to make me the Janet Gaynor of England. I was going to play all the sweet roles. Whereupon, at the tender age of 13, I set upon the path of playing nothing but hookers. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> she even recalled, quote... My father once said to me, you're born to be bad. And it was true. I made eight films in England before I came to America, and I played a tramp or slut in every one of them. <laughs> uh, I, it's not. And here's the thing that uh, here's why I included that those quotes is because for her, it's not a she's not like saying it for shock and awe she oh. wasn't saying it She's as saying it, it. she which loved is, which is, it which is not no it's so funny but for its time it definitely sounds out of hilarious the box. Yeah. i know i'm like is this when are we talking right like, is yeah. this 1930 how or 2021 <laughs> yeah right exactly like wow sex positivity here In 1933, Ida was tapped by Paramount Pictures to star in the 1933 Alice in Wonderland. 
as it turns out, she tested too mature for the role, and the part went to Charlotte Henry. Ida arrived in the United States aboard the RMS Berengaria on August 25th, 1933, at the age of 15. So she's testing too mature for Alice at, at 15. 15. Yeah. She made her way to Hollywood in 1934. She didn't see immediate success and was only being cast in small parts. Her most notable at the time was in the 1935 black and white drama fantasy film Peter Ibbotson starring Gary Cooper and Anne Harding, where she played Agnes. Ida was slotted into Earl Kenton's Search for Beauty. She starred in the film with Olympic gold medalist Buster Crabbe. The story follows two professional swimmers who find themselves in unfamiliar waters of the publishing industry. Ooh. <laughs> I kind of want to watch it. That's That sounds tantalizing. <laughs> Goodness. In May of 1934, there was an L.A. epidemic of polio and Ida contracted the disease. Whoa. Fortunately, it turned out to be a super mild case. And she was administered serum and recovered within just a few months. Phew, thank goodness for science. <laughs> in 1936, a meteor part finally came along with the film The Light That Failed. She played opposite Ronald Coleman as a hot-tempered Cockney model. Her performance in the movie brought her attention as an actress of gravitas and dramatic merit. Ida was commonly typecast as a hard yet sympathetic woman from the wrong side of the tracks, which I understand that typecast. That is so <laughs> unique. I feel like for its time, I, oh. I, I imagine those characters were really only starting to flush them, be fleshed out yeah. in storyline. Oh my gosh. It's it's. She she basically is like the pinnacle of that right. person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 1940, she upstaged George Raft and an up-and-coming Humphrey Bogart as the scheming wife of a trucking magnate who is driven mad by lust to murder in the film They Drive by Night. She played a rootless gammon in love with, once again, Humphrey Bogart's Mad Dog Earl in High Sierra in 1941. She reportedly played the role so well that people raved no one could do hard luck dames the way Lupino could do them. Hard luck dames. Mm -hmm. That's great. That, I that should be love the name it. of a movie. I know. Starring her <laughs> or someone playing like that role of her doing these movies. Mm -hmm. I would love to see that also. Mm -hmm. Wow. In the 1941 film, The Sea Wolf, she kept the peace between autocratic skipper Edward G. Robinson and landlubber John Garfield. She played tough, knowing women who could hold their own against men. Her co-stars were the aforementioned Humphrey Bogart, Ronald Coleman, John Garfield, and Edward Robinson. It was reported in Picturegoer magazine in 1941 that, quote, she gave up a contract at $1,700 a week rather than play in unsuitable stories. Wow. It was never by accident that she took the role she did. Stand your ground. I love that. Good roles for women were extremely hard to come by, particularly because when there were, in fact, good roles written... All of the actresses wanted them. Right. So when there's a good role, you've got 
the whole town of Hollywood coming out for yeah, that part. Right, yeah. yeah. You don't just want to yeah, be typecasted as like, you know, a character Damsel that you don't distress really, over yeah, and over and over if it again. It doesn't fit you and she sounds like she was a strong woman to begin with. Mm-hmm. So it's like why would she yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. I, I like that. Mm-hmm. In 1943, Ida was awarded best actress by New York film critics for her performance in The Hard Way where she portrayed a dying woman recounting the bullet points of her tragic fall from grace. Whoa. I know. Some of these plots for the movies sound so good. Incredible. Yeah. I don't know why I assume the plots to be so simple back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing, I feel like the storylines are equally as interesting now. There's just so much... It's so much more glossier now mm-hmm. that uh, it takes a life of its own. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. good writing goes a long way, period. Mm-hmm. Becoming increasingly frustrated seeing others in control of the narrative, Ida dipped her toe into producing in 1946 as an uncredited co-producer for the film Young Widow. I also just wanted to mention, it seemed like she really hit the ground running with the, oh my with God. the acting oh, uh, yeah. before she even started to produce. Mm-hmm. I think it's great that she even went into production. Absolutely. It's good. Deciding it was high time to take control of her own narrative, Ida left Warner Brothers Studios in 1947 and became a freelance actress. During this time, actors and actresses were signed on to major companies for extended contracts. And if you guys want to hear more about this time in Hollywood, go have a listen to our episode about Hedy Lamarr, because I'm not going to go into it right now, because we've done it before. So um, if you want to go into that, go listen to that after you finish this episode. Will do. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Quote, the beautiful things about Warner Brothers when I was there, I only worked with great people, actors, directors, producers. But when I left... Nobody said goodbye. Wow. Yeah. That honestly seems That says like all of it. Yeah. There's, uh, like, it's such, it seems like there's such a facade mm-hmm. um, in the industry, she left I guess, the cult. also, put, yeah, perhaps <laughs> in the West Coast as well, but um, to a certain extent, but I, I'm glad, though, that she was able to move up into, into, you know, uh, to climb up the ladder, so to speak, from she actress. left. She just hopped that ladder and built her own elevator. Well, that's the thing, right? <laughs> because like the elevator was only going so high for her, mm-hmm. and then when she got off, it was like when yeah. she got off the elevator, she turned around and it was like it wasn't even there yeah. because mm-hmm. you yeah. know they were just being fake, or yeah. you know they only wanted mm-hmm. to engage with her in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but good for her for jumping. Yeah. In 1948, Ida had the opportunity to perform some of her own songs, like One for My Baby and One for the Road, in her role as a nightclub singer in the film Roadhouse. It was at this point in her career that Ida really stepped behind the camera as director, writer, and producer. She put money into the independent rhyme drama The Judge in 1949. This was a film directed by Elmer Clifton, made under her own production company called Emerald Pictures, a company named after her mother. Uh, Connie Connie Emerald. Yeah. That's so nice. And it was in partnership with Anson Bond, the heir to America's first national chain of clothing stores. I thought that, (laughs) okay. I was was thinking about about the Bond store. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Superstore. Yeah. But that's... Also, it shows that people were... It's great that she was able to do... Uh, I wonder what the trailer looked like for that movie, The Judge. I mean, 
I'm sure there were movie trailers out for it. I've did they it, do trailers back then? I can almost. I think imagine they just did them, posters. But, yeah. but also, that's cool that she stepped back from both the from the actor role to wear yeah. multiple hats. Mm-hmm. The film turned a profit. Quote, I'd love to see more women working as directors and producers. Today, it's almost impossible to do it unless you are an actress with power. I wouldn't hesitate right this minute to hire a talented woman if this subject matter were right. Her directorial debut came about through an unfortunate event in pre-production for the 1949 film Not Wanted. In collaboration, once again, with Elmer Clifton and development of a Paul Jericho script with her husband, Collier Young, who was a Columbia production executive about an unwed mother. The script was pressed on them by Warner's producer, Jerry Wald, and brother Marvin. Columbia head Harry Cohn refused to back it, so Lupino stepped right in to stamp it as an Emerald Pictures film. Oh, she swooped in Uh for the save. She said, okay, boop, mine now. When Elmer Clifton suffered a heart attack, it was once again Ida to the rescue. Yes. She oversaw all aspects of production from script rewrites and budgeting to wardrobe. Ida called the shots on set from the first day of filming in February of 1949. That's so impressive. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hope they... I hope they appreciated how she basically came in and saved this project. Mm -hmm. I hope. (laughs) Ida was 31 and not a member of the Director's Guild, so she downplayed her significance on set. Boo. Deferred for the record to Clifton as he retained the official directing credit. Wow. Yeah. I mean, at least this is the second project he worked with her. Yeah, they have a good working relationship. It's not that he wanted credit. It was that that was the way they had to do it. Like union rules, you know. She shot the film guerrilla style on the L.A. streets. Cool. This approach reduced not only the cost of sets, but the necessity of them overall. The film and Ida were dependent on investors. When one objected to heroine Sally Forrest sharing a boarding house room with an African-American woman, she begrudgingly cut the footage. But despite the bigoted benefactor, she included a business scene featuring an Asian actress. (laughs) So she was like, all right, I'll cut that one. But this business owner isn't going to be stereotypically Asian and it's going to be an Asian owned situation here so they sound lame for (laughs) wanting that scene cut out but you know such is the times you know while she certainly wasn't the first female director it was still uncommon for a woman to direct a feature film let alone one with a budget of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that grossed over a million woof yeah she set the bar period like she set the bar that's incredible on her part ida wanted quote to make pictures of sociological nature to tackle serious themes and problem dramas in 1949 with young she released the film never fear it was released during the height of the 1949 polio epidemic about the devastating effects of the disease inspired by her own battle. How important of a project that was for that time. Mm -hmm. Using her own savings and a loan from an agent, she shot it largely in a rehab center with recovering victims among the cast. 
A clear highlight is a wheelchair dance sequence. Unfortunately, audiences weren't ready to look reality in the face with this one. It hit a little bit too close to home. The filmmakers, previously known as Emerald Pictures, so during this process they've rebranded from Emerald Pictures to the filmmakers, they released a film called Outrage in 1950. It examines the aftermath of a brutal rape and how society didn't know what to do. It featured Mala Powers in her first role. There's a five-minute scene with no dialogue. It shows Mala being stalked by her rapist with sweeping shots to illuminate how isolated she was. There were multiple quick cuts that made the watcher increasingly uneasy until, bam, the sound of a blaring truck horn throws you for quite a loop. It features a potential witness opening a window, looking out, and then slamming it shut. It was distributed by RKO Radio Pictures. Head Howard Hughes gave the film an expensive push that included an elaborate press junket and a splashy premiere that was even preceded by a live stage show. That's incredible that it got everything and that it got the push. And I'm also surprised that RKO Radio Pictures decided to back it. Back this. That's I'm. I imagine the next things you're about to say (laughs) in relation to this Mm -hmm. uh, screening is that people were so uncomfortable that they walked out, complained, and felt awkward (laughs) about the situation that they're supposed to be feeling weird about, and Mm -hmm. that was the whole point. So she, uh, she, damn. All right, take it away. Sorry. Well, I actually don't know the details on that, but. Um, while RKO, I wish I had been able to look up how the oh, premiere that's actually went. Basically, I'm sure that's how that <laughs> happened. You said 1950? Yeah, these yeah. people were walking out uncomfortable. They're still doing that now to like paranormal activity. Yeah. And that's not even like yeah. anything near that. Yeah. While RKO eventually went bankrupt because of what could be considered alternative money handling, Outrage was one of its few money makers. It made money. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure people were like, oh my gosh, this movie. Yeah. And then, but then know, Variety, Variety said it was, quote, one topic which would better have been left unfilmed. And I think, though, but overall, it, it received a lot of good reception on people being like, oh, because you just, you don't talk about it, you know? That's, uh, I'm, mm-hmm. that sucks that Variety said that. Yeah. But. In 1951, Hard, Fast, and Beautiful was in production. A sports film featuring a young tennis star and her domineering mother. Unfortunately, due to the creative bookkeeping of RKO, the film disappeared from release. Though you can find it today, from what I've gathered at least, um, and it is missing a few scenes though. So it is viewable, it just didn't get because, you know, RKO went boop. Yeah. In 1951, Ida and Collier Young divorced. He took up a relationship with his co-star in The Bigamist. Her name was Joan Fontaine. Put a pin in that little nugget because we'll be returning to it. Pinned. (laughs) And Ida went to Howard Duff, whom she was then married to for the next 30 years. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Throughout her production and directing endeavors, Ida kept her debts in check by continuing to act. She portrayed the blind sister of killer Robert Ryan in the 1952 film On Dangerous Ground. 
At age 34, Ida gave birth to her one and only child on April 23, 1952. Her daughter, Bridget Morella Duff, I love the name Bridget. That's a, 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 nice, a perfect, that's a, a stage name. Yeah, that's a sweet name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that her daughter was with her um, third husband, Howard Duff, obviously. Bridget was a tiny little thing, only weighing four pounds at birth and nearly dying. Oh. Quote, come hell or high water, adopted or my own, I am going to have, I must have some kids. So she, she got was to determined. Have her kids. She said, I need to put need to continue my lineage yeah ida often joked that as an actress she was a poor man's betty davis and as a director she's a poor man's don siegel oh she definitely (laughs) sold herself short it was kind of a running joke because (laughs) while she was still at warner brothers she would frequently refuse the davis hand-me-downs leading to multiple suspensions Quote, I don't want to be told someday that I will be replaced by some starlet as I was told I would replace Betty Davis. During her suspensions is when she really studied the craft of directing. Quote, I see myself in the years ahead directing or producing or both. I see myself developing new talent, which would be furiously interesting for me. For I love talent. I love to watch it, love to help it. I am more genuinely interested in the talent of others than I am in my own. I love that perspective, and I wish more that's who you want from that. a director. Yeah, that's what you want, and and also from other people. Well, yeah. for them to think so selflessly mm-hmm. to like put other people on and to mm-hmm. like see the um the value and progression in others that they might not see in themselves. It's a good person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone you want in your corner. Yes. Ida was undoubtedly and unintentionally a pioneer for women in filmmaking as the second woman admitted into the Directors Guild, Dorothy Arzner being the first. She even said that she didn't intentionally set out to, like, scorch a man's world. She was like, I didn't see it as a man. I saw it as, like, I can do this, too. Let me do this too. And then and then men heard that and scorched the earth themselves. <laughs> they were like, no. Well, listen to this. Martin Scorsese called her, quote, a woman of extraordinary talents, and one of those talents was directing. Her tough, glowingly emotional work as an actress is well-remembered, but her considerable accomplishments as a filmmaker are largely forgotten, and they shouldn't be. The five films she directed between 1949 and in 1953 are remarkable chamber pieces that deal with challenging subjects in clear, almost documentary fashion, and they represent a singular achievement in American cinema. She, I, I would love now, after having done this, mm-hmm. to um, watch oh her movies. Yeah, they I look think, like documentaries. I think it's important um, to... I mean, I'm sure we'd be able to find them on YouTube. I don't, I don't know if I think Netflix they're on Amazon. Are... Oh, that'd be good if Amazon, mm-hmm. at, at least one of them. I mean, if she was they in movies with like Humphrey Humphrey Bogart, yeah, I feel like those oh, movies yeah. are just like on yeah Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. They have freaking Casablanca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that those movies are the same, right? Or that. But... Well, as you, 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 they might be. You don't right. know. It's like a Turner it classic movie. Get, That's yeah. what I imagine. You know. <laughs> Richard Boone said of her directing style, quote, Ida stimulates me as an actor because she knows acting. In a weekly show, you get into acting patterns. Ida gets you out of them. One time in dealing with a method actor, heavy eye rolls, 
for me, method acting isn't real, people. Points at her eyes. She said, (laughs) quote, darling, we have a three-day schedule. There's no time to do anything but to do it. Oh, (laughs) that's so good. I love, I I need to hear that. I need to tell myself that more when Mm -hmm. I'm like pressed with the. (laughs) There's no time. Like. There's nothing else to do but do it. Yeah. Yeah. You just got. Just do it. There's no other time to do it. In 1952, The Hitchhiker made its way out and was the only noir film directed by a woman. Her previous films addressed the lopsided racial politics in Hollywood. This one was a skewering of the fragile male psyche. The opening title credit reads, quote, This is the true story of a man and a gun and a car. It follows fishing buddies Edmund O'Brien and Lovejoy up against the escaped killer William Tallman, who mocks the married men for being soft and forces them to drive into Mexico. Yeah. What a plot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really, really want to watch I that. I don't know way. where that would fit in right now, but I know I'm interested in seeing what that's up what that's about. Yeah. It was really highly lauded. Ida was the only person to appear in and direct episodes of the television hit series, The Twilight Zone. She acted in The Twilight Zone, The 16mm Shrine in 1959, and she directed The Twilight Zone, The Masks in 1964, which is coincidentally one of my favorite episodes, and I had no idea she directed it. I can't remember the first one, but the second, but... That's such a good episode. That is one of the like quintessential Twilight Zone episodes. They make Halloween masks and still sell them. Yeah. It follows the tale of a dying man who makes his, quote, vulturous family wear creepy AF Mardi Gras masks, quote, with certain properties to earn their share of their inheritance. She is actually the only woman to have directed an episode in the Twilight Zone. I, I, now, I don't know if that statistic is still true with the new iteration. No, it but can't even be. It, I, I, no. I Definitely, don't know. I, I don't imagine it with the Hulu one. Or, you know, there was another one in the 90s that they did. Mm. Um, and then they now they've more uh, more recently, now they've remade it for right. Hulu. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe. Hopefully not. Um, <laughs> yeah, to my knowledge, I'm pretty sure there's been at least one woman who's directed this. <laughs> new iteration but that's honestly really impressive to know um yeah yeah. i love the twilight zone series so that's kind of that's what i said that's why i said er before we started recording that it would um as soon as i brought up one part you would it would ring a bell on like you would be able to associate her with someone yes and it's it's that episode one of the most iconic episodes i love that quote often i pretended to a cameraman to know less than i did That way I got more cooperation. Ida spoke about how when she was on set, she basically had to suggest she wanted things and like act as acted as if it would be this like great favor to me. If if like maybe we did this like, oh, darling, I cannot like do this myself. Can you can you maybe do that? You know, and and more just to get the men to comply with her without their egos getting a hit. You know, that's that's how you win in Survivor. <laughs> she went on to direct various TV show episodes on shows like The Untouchables and The Fugitive. 
quote, I'd rather work all night and sleep all day. Perhaps I was a mole in my last incarnation. <laughs> and I didn't know where to put that quote, uh, but I knew I had to put it in. Anywhere would have fit reasons. perfectly. <laughs> it could have been at the beginning when she was 15. I know. Her accomplishments didn't go unnoticed as she was given two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Cool. One for motion pictures that's located at 6821 Hollywood Boulevard. And the second for television located at 1724 Vine Street in Hollywood. She left such a such an imprint in the industry. Mm-hmm. She was known for her ability to anticipate and understand the actor's needs with a punchy, unflinching directing style some described as masculine, which is hilarious because if you look at her general aesthetic, it's a refusal of the patriarchal perspective. General but aesthetic? Here we are. <laughs> yeah, that's that's preposterous. I'd have preferred to keep her acting and directing separate, with one exception. Remove the pin from earlier. We're going to be talking about the 1953 film The Bigamist. The film was self-financed. This outing made her the first woman to direct herself in a major feature. Oh, that's so cool. The gender politics surrounding the film do not age well, and they're made even weirder by Collier casting his new wife, Fontaine, opposite of his ex-wife, Ida, as the objects of his affections. <laughs> Get in the bin, sir. Oh, man. Get in the bin. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's... That's so cringy. Yeah. Quote, I cannot tolerate fools. Won't have anything to do with them. I only want to associate with brilliant people. (laughs) I feel you. That's so awkward, man. Oh, he's so gross. What did you do? I know. Why did you do that? There were like at least three other women in Hollywood. And this was like right after their divorce. I'm exaggerating entirely. There were way more than three, (laughs) but you could have picked anyone that wasn't even acting and it would have been a better choice you could have picked a mole (laughs) you could have picked a a shoe or a vacuum yeah oh god yeah anyway moving on yeah in 1966 ida tried her hand in a new genre with the girls school comedy the trouble with angels starring Haley mills as a convent quote cut up and rosalind russell as mother superior Ooh. I know. Ida then went on to portray the supervillain Dr. Cassandra in a 1968 episode of Batman. Fun. Dr. Cassandra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds <And> evil. <laughs> and a jailhouse screw in the TV movie Women in Chains in 1972. As you can see, as she aged, she was cast in more and more villainous roles which goals really yeah it's like that's how i want my trajectory you and me both (laughs) in her last film my boys are good boys in 1978 she portrayed the mastermind of an armored car heist carried out by teenagers that's (laughs) amazing incredible Incredible. i'm sure it was ludicrous (laughs) the plot that that just seems yeah uh, outlandish yeah. In an entertaining way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rightfully so, two of her films have been selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It was for Outrage, actually, and The Hitchhiker. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. 
Howard Duff and Ida divorced in 1984. Ida moved from the fashionable Brentwood to San Fernando Valley. She dealt with long-term alcoholism, becoming a recluse in retirement, even finding herself estranged from her adult daughter. When Duff died in 1990, Ida took it incredibly hard, spending her final years in depression and illness. That's sad. One being mental deterioration, which first began to show itself when she had trouble remembering her lines for TV shows. Oh, no. I know. Ida was then diagnosed with colon cancer and had a massive stroke in 1995. Holy crap. Mm -hmm. She passed away in her Burbank home on August 3rd, 1995, at the age of 77. The timing was ironic, as there had been a renewal of public interest in her feature film work, after receiving championing among film historians, presenting her as an important figure in the development of American cinema. Giving giving flowers when it's or when it's too late. I know. Well, it's interesting because Mala, the woman who starred in, in Outrage, right. um, was actually the executor of her will. Oh. So they remained like close. lifelong friends. That's so sweet. And she, you know, is really, really sad. But I'm I'm gonna leave you guys with this quote. I never wrote straight women's roles. I like the strong character. I don't mean women who have masculine qualities about them, but something that has some intestinal fortitude, some guts to it. You. (laughs) But also, that I feel like that archetype was so far and few at the beginning that Mm -hmm. we really have to go above and beyond to appreciate performers who play that role Mm -hmm. and that role itself. Yeah, and I I wonder if... It needed, if those types of roles, right, needed someone like Ida who just embodies that naturally and isn't trying to act that, you know? So it's like the thing where a really good actor can uplift any script. Yeah. And so I wonder if when she was cast in her, you know, the, um, you know, her, her first big roles that she really elevated the part and that archetype because them saying nobody plays a hard luck game like her. And then people are seeing, I, I wonder if women were then seeing, Oh, I don't have to be a damsel to be an actress. I can come out and like be amazing, be rich, be hard, be um, perseverant and yeah. not have to turn and like lean on someone else. Right. And I wonder if that helped to, now get to where we've got you know, Black Widow and, you know, we've got these characters that... These badass women who are just yeah. kind of, like, also just, you know, empowered outside of their roles, but Kicking when they butt come and in the roles... Names. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, They're, they have the confidence to be able to come in. So I would like to think that she provided that, not just for actresses, but for producers, writers, and, and um, directors. Because yeah. she came out here and was like... Uh, the, the very fact that she's the only woman to have directed um, an episode in The Twilight Zone, right? So that means that she was so good that they, she, I. They recognized yeah, her talent. Yeah, and I think and her, her confidence in it, too, to be um, able to turn down movie roles and take the suspension that, you know, puts 
that that just shows you what kind of person she is. The yep. whole thing where she's like, they call me this, this, and this. Yeah. Well, the only person that can hurt my feelings is me. Right. So. <laughs> no, she definitely had a backbone. And she was also strong-willed mm-hmm. to be able to turn those roles down. Also shows that she had a sense yes. of values, mm-hmm. morals. Knew her worth. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Herstorians, for tuning in again. Subscribe, follow, tell the Bodega Man when you order your bacon, egg, and cheese. Come back this Friday for an interview with the founder of Galaxy Bujot and fine jewelry designer Susan Pascal Johansson. In this interview, she talks about her design process, her mother and muse, Francine Pascal, and everything in between. Okay, that sounds cool. It is so cool. She sounds like she... uh... That's, that, that sounds like an interview you definitely would want to listen to and then maybe DIY at home. <laughs> or just know? go order her yeah, stuff. Yeah, or, or just order her stuff because, you know, it is women. a very It is a really nice creative interview. So if you want some creative energy, this is the one. Tune in. Mm-hmm. Follow us on social media. Instagram. At Women of Her Story Podcast. Twitter. At The Her Story Pod. TikTok. At Women of Her Story. Facebook. At Women of Her Story. <laughs> and you can visit our website at www.ofherstory.com backslash ooh. Halloween. It's 10 O's and 16 <laughs> E's and a Z somewhere. <laughs> Until Friday, be safe, stay healthy, and show the world what you're made of and also have the happiest Halloween. Ooh. Bye, guys. <laughs>